Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, and welcome back to Sassy Speculum episode four. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm a fourth year medical student in Portland, Oregon, and today we're talking about anxiety. I put out a few different polls on the socials asking you all what you wanted this week's topic to be about, and anxiety won hands down on every platform. So I'm thinking that we maybe all have some excessive anxieties that we need to work through. Hopefully, this episode will shine some light on why you or someone you know may be experiencing anxiety, what is actually going on in your body when you're anxious, and what you can do about it, and much more. Stick around, and hopefully you'll learn something. I want to start out this episode with a little non-anxiety-related story. A few days ago, I was on a long drive with my pepperoni Kingsley, and listening to some other women's health podcasts out there in the podverse to see what other people were up to. I think I tried out like three to four of the top women's health podcasts on Spotify, and one of which had an episode on fibroids, which I had literally just supported a patient with that morning. So I thought it would be a great learning opportunity to see what else I could have done for the patient. But holy heck, I was so incredibly wrong. This podcast featured the director of the OBGYN department at a prominent American university as their guest speaker, so I expected it to be great. I do, of course, recognize that my education and understanding of the human body is different than those in the allopathic medical field, but I guess I really had no idea how different it was until this episode. Every question that the host asked this director about fibroids, he answered 100% differently than I would, to the point that I was like literally screaming at my car radio. I wholeheartedly disagreed with pretty much everything that he said, especially after he said the only options for fibroid treatment are uterus removal, cutting off blood supply to the uterus, or putting somebody into temporary menopause. The host kept pushing him and asking in different ways for further treatment options, and he continuously said, I've already answered this question, there aren't any more treatment options. I was honestly considering reaching out to this host and being like, yo, you want some actual fibroid facts to redo that episode? But of course, I can't give treatment options as a medical student. So while I have so many ideas that could save people's fertility, I will hold off for one more year until I'm a licensed physician and then I can finally legally ruffle some feathers. My point of the story is not to talk poorly about other podcasts or other types of medicine out there by any means. But to ask all of you listening, if you ever hear anything that I say that doesn't vibe with you or that you disagree with, please reach out to me and let me know. I'm striving to make this podcast 100% fact-based, and I do my best to cross-check all of my research. But if anything ever slips through the cracks or you know of something else that I should have added in, please let me know. You can always message me on the socials at sassyspeculum. You can email me at sassyspeculum at gmail.com. Or you can leave an anonymous message on my website at www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum. Or you can tell me in person if you have that pleasure. So that's the end of the rant for the day. Um, Please make sure to rate and review Sassy Speculum on all of your podcast listening platforms. It's your reviews that push this podcast further out into the world, and it really means so much to me that some of you have taken the time to share what you think. So truly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys. So now, moving on to why we're all actually here, anxiety. As you will hear later on, I myself struggle with newfound anxiety, and I know that so many other people do as well. I personally didn't know that the feelings I've had most of my life were anxiety. I just thought that was how everybody felt all the time. 
But it turns out it is possible to have a conversation without planning everything that I need to say prior to saying it, that your brain isn't supposed to stop when talking to strangers, and that most people don't really care about what you do. That being said, I really want to do this episode right and make sure that I get all the points across well, because this is such a prevalent topic and it's really important to me. So let's dive in. I'm sure we've all felt anxious at some point in our life, but what is the difference between feeling anxious, having anxiety, and panic? There are many different versions of anxiety, as well as many different versions of how you can react to your anxieties. In reality, feeling anxious is 100% healthy and normal. It is a conditioned response when you feel absolutely nerve-wracked. I'm a Jew, so worry and anxiousness just are a part of who I am in general. Having abyssal of anxiety is my baseline. But when is it too much anxiety? When does your anxiousness become an anxiety disorder? There's a part of your brain that's called the amygdala. It lies in the center of your brain and it controls your fight or flight response. It's in charge of our survival as humans. If there's a red hot speculum being waved at you at your doctor's office, your amygdala is going to tell you, get this thing the hell away from me, and you're going to automatically close your legs and scooch up and maybe jump off that table. That is the job of your amygdala, to interpret information and send word to your autonomic nervous system to either fight the doctor or get away from them. This autonomic nervous system controls all automatic processes in your body, like heart rate, how fast you're breathing, sweating, etc. This is why when you're anxious, you can feel like your heart is racing or you're breathing too fast and you can't get enough air in, or you get sweaty armpits or palms. But in an anxiety disorder, the amygdala doesn't only react to things that are scary. The amygdala reacts to everyday things that other people have no problem with. While people without an anxiety disorder can certainly have painfully intense and long periods of stress in their life, they're usually able to have some sort of control over their racing thoughts or worries. That's one of the main differences between feeling anxious and having a problem with anxiety. The ability to talk yourself out of your thoughts. In medicine, we use what's called the DSM-5 to diagnose mental conditions. DSM stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. After college, I dated a guy who was working on his PhD in counseling psychology. And one night, we just sat on the couch and we looked through the DSM, which is probably the largest book in history, and we just discussed all the things that can be wrong with people. Totally normal. Quite a romantic night. It actually wasn't until the 20th century that anxiety was entered into the DSM as a psychiatric disorder. It is now defined as simply as the anticipation of a future threat. Because of its newness and being added into the DSM, anxiety is often regarded as a new disorder. And like schizophrenia, it was barely known as an illness prior to the 19th century. But of course, anxiety and schizophrenia didn't just pop out of the blue once the clocks turned to year 1801. There are indications that anxiety was present in Greco-Roman times, in the Hippocratic Corpus, which is a collection of Greek medical texts, either from Hippocrates himself or those who worked with him, a man's phobia was described as follows. Nicanor's affection when he went to a drinking party was fear of the flute girl. Whenever he heard the voice of the flute begin to play at a symposium, masses of terror rose up. He said that he could hardly bear it when it was night, but if he heard it in the daytime, he was not affected. Such symptoms persisted over a long period of time. This case of phobia sounds a hell of a lot like anxiety over a hot chick to me, and it was labeled as a medical disorder at that time. Latin Stoic philosophers described affliction, worry, and anxiety as disorders on account of the analogy between a troubled mind and a diseased body. Seneca, another Stoic, wrote an entire book called Of Peace and Mind, 
on how to achieve freedom from anxiety. There are thousands more examples of anxiety popping up in these ancient texts, but anxiety still wasn't technically a diagnosable disease until the 19th century, and it finally showed up in the DSM in the 20th century. For something that rocks and sometimes rules my entire everyday life, I'm a little jealous of these ancient times when anxiety was more uncommon that people couldn't even agree on what to call this affliction. One of the diagnosis names that actually was one of the most successful was Beard's Neurasthenia, coined by George Beard and described as a nervous exhaustion for people whose bodies and minds couldn't keep up with the accelerated lifestyles of the 19th century. Something I found interesting was that the diagnosis of anxiety actually didn't start becoming actually recognized until two women, Jane Addams and Charlotte Perkins Gilman, stepped onto the scene. If any of you knew me since college, you probably know that I'm an absolute hoe for Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and I did my undergraduate research on her teachings, so when I read that she helped to officially classify anxiety, it made my little college Adrian heart so proud. Speaking of women, in a 2011 study, researchers looked into the differences between males and females when it came to anxiety disorders. They found that women are two times more likely to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, and that women diagnosed with anxiety are more likely to have an additional anxiety disorder, bulimia nervosa, and or major depressive disorder, while men are more likely to have a co-diagnosis of substance abuse disorder, ADHD, or intermittent explosive disorder, which I learned today doesn't have to do with diarrhea at all, but is an actual mental health disorder, aka Women are more likely to cope by hiding, and men are more likely to cope with drugs or exploding on people. Women were also found to have a greater illness burden than men, which implies a higher rate of disability with the disorders among women than men. So why are women so much more prone to anxiety than men? That doesn't quite seem fair. And like always, there are a few factors involved. The first reason, it's pretty basic, but the role sexism plays on one's mental health affects women on a very measurable level. The second is hormonal fluctuations. They do play a strong role in our mental health, and for obvious reasons, women have a much higher hormonal fluctuation than men do. The third reason is pretty new in research, and it will most likely change how anxiety is treated between the sexes. Researchers were looking at a part of the brain called the locus ceruleus, which is the center that produces norepinephrine, among other things. But norepinephrine is often deficient in depression, anxiety, or sleep problems. This is what the medication SNRIs target to increase levels of norepinephrine. So they were looking in little mousy brains, and they discovered that the gentleman and the lady mice's locus ceruleuses looked incredibly different. The lady mice locus ceruleuses had many more genes present linked to depression, and also has much, much, much more of a certain receptor called PTGER3, which is a receptor that mediates adrenocorticotropic hormone, which manages the body's stress response. So if women have such a higher amount of this receptor, and this receptor plays such a big role in our stress responses, among other bodily functions, targeting this receptor with therapy instead of just targeting serotonin and norepinephrine with SSRIs and SNRIs might be the key to helping women treat their anxiety in the future once further studies have been done. Because the research field, like many others in our world, has predominantly been dominated by men, female research has been lacking, and we're at a really great point in time to see how new research affects how we choose to treat the sexes differently. As I mentioned earlier, there are many different versions of anxiety disorders. Anxiety is a symptom that can be seen along with many disorders, like thyroid disorders or anemia can cause extreme anxieties, and it can also be due to non-pathological situations like stress. The most common anxiety disorder 
It affects 15 million adults in the United States and is characterized by persistent fear of one or more social or performance situations in which the person is exposed to unfamiliar people or possibility of scrutiny by others. People typically with this disorder are terrified of embarrassing or humiliating themselves. The next most common is post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. 7.7 million American adults are diagnosed with PTSD, and women are actually five times more likely to be affected than men, with rape being the most likely trigger for both men and women. It can develop after exposure to a potentially traumatic event that is beyond a typical stressor. However, traumatic events are pretty common. At least half of all U.S. adults will experience at least one traumatic event in their life but most don't develop PTSD. People who develop PTSD have persistent frightening thoughts and memories of the events, experience difficulties with sleep, feel detached or numb, or they can be easily startled. Generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD, is the next most common. It affects 6.8 million adults in the United States and is characterized by excessive and persistent worry that is difficult to control, causes significant distress or impairment, and it occurs on more days than not for at least six months. It can also include apprehension, irritability, increased fatigue, and muscle tension. And this is the most general anxiety disorder, hence its name, and what I'm mostly referring to when I say anxiety disorders. After GAD, the next most common is panic disorder which affects 6 million American adults. The differences between having an anxiety disorder and a panic disorder are important. Panic disorders are anxiety disorders, but it's characterized by unexpected and repeated episodes of intense fear accompanied by physical symptoms that may include chest pain, heart palpitations, shortness of breath, dizziness, or abdominal distress. What I just described is a panic attack for sure, and people with other anxiety disorders or even none at all can have panic attacks but does that mean that they have a panic disorder? Not necessarily. The key to it being diagnosed as a panic disorder is that these panic episodes occur out of the blue and not in conjunction with a known fear or stressor. I personally had never had a panic attack until I had already been accepted into med school and I was finishing up my prerequisites. I had probably three to four panic attacks that summer and then I decided to defer from school for a year and I got a job as a nanny for a single mom who I completely allowed to walk all over me. It wasn't until she lied to me and her friend had to tell me that she was moving across the country in the next two weeks that I ended up having a week-long panic attack. A whole damn week. I came back from a run one night and I couldn't breathe to the point that I was crawling around on the floor looking for my inhaler that I hadn't used since I had bronchitis in the ninth grade, a sight that I now look back on and it must have been pretty funny. Um, I went to urgent care, and they assumed that I had pleurisy, which is a condition when the two linings of the lung become inflamed, and they gave me steroids. A few days later, I sat on the floor of my stepdad's living room, sobbing, and was fed goldfish one by one by a five-year-old. Another funny sight, I'm sure. And finally, a few days later, I ended up hospitalized because I truly couldn't breathe, and they ran a million tests on me, and boy, can I tell you the absolute shame that I felt when they told me it was just a panic attack and I needed to go home and stop wasting a hospital bed. When in reality, what I needed to hear was, hey dude, you're going to be okay, here's some Xanax and hang out until you feel like you can breathe again. But as we all know, the American medical system doesn't work that way. So when I had these panic attacks, did I have a panic disorder? No. I had very concrete reasons for these panic attacks, and once the situations were remedied, things got better. The last anxiety disorder that is actually the least common, it affects 2.5 million American adults, is obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD. 
OCD is defined as having uncontrollable recurring obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviors that they feel the urge to repeat over and over. So those are the main classified anxiety disorders listed in the DSM. As mentioned earlier, in general, I'm talking about generalized anxieties throughout this episode and not the more specialized conditions. One thing that they teach us in naturopathic school that I don't think is really discussed in the allopathic world is that there are three different phases of anxiety. And depending on which phase you are in, we will treat it completely differently. Disclaimer here, this is not medical advice. This is an explanation of the differences as it is an important distinction. The first phase is the alarm phase. This is when that red hot speculum is coming at you and your amygdala is telling you to get as far away from that thing and the doctor as quickly as possible. When you're in this phase, you have a spike of epinephrine and norepinephrine and your sympathetic nervous system is activated to get you the hell out of there. When you get into a car accident, you have that initial shock of, OMG, that was scary, and then you'll feel kind of like wound up or on alert for the rest of the day, or maybe a few days. Your body is alarmed. When you're in this phase, you want to calm the nervous system with nervines. If you don't treat it with nervines and get the system to take a literal and figurative chill pill, you'll move on to the resistance phase. Your body is no longer acutely alarmed, but it's still sending out signals that there are threats in your world. In this phase, you get increases in cortisol, which is one of our stress hormones, and DHEA, which is a precursor to both testosterone and estrogen. And if you're in this phase for long enough, DHEA will eventually start to decrease to below normal range as your body is getting close to being completely worn out, but you're still amped. Many people in this phase will present with high blood pressure and high glucose levels. To treat this phase, you need sedative adaptogens. Adaptogens are substances that help the body to adapt to stress and exert a normalizing effect on the autonomic bodily processes like heart rate, breathing rate, GI function, etc. You want a sedative adaptogen to help bring your body back down to homeostasis. The third phase is the exhaustion phase. If you've gotten here, your body is so tired from constantly staying vigilant and ready for any threat out there, you will have low cortisol and low DHEA. You can present with low blood pressure as well as low blood sugar, You're just flat out tuckered. Your body is done. In this phase, you need the opposite of phase two. You need stimulant adaptogens, substances that'll bring your body back up to homeostasis and help you to adapt to circumstances as they come at you instead of constantly being subconsciously aware of every possible threat. These three phases are why you can't just throw anxiolytics at people and expect them to get better. Sure, they're absolutely great in the short term, but benzodiazepines, which are the anxiolytic drugs most commonly prescribed, work for four to eight hours typically. If you're in one of these phases, specifically the latter two, you can't just take benzos every couple of hours to be a functioning human being. Well, I guess you can, but that can lead to very serious and long-term adverse effects on your organ systems and overall health like respiratory depression, coma, and even death. Those guys are not ones to mess around with, and wouldn't you rather treat the actual cause of your anxiety than just put a Band-Aid over them? And please remember, nothing that I just said is medical advice. Please speak to your doctor prior to making any changes to your healthcare regimen. On top of the different disorders and these three phases, differentiating between how one experiences anxiety, different generations also experience anxiety differently. There's been a steady increase over the decades in mental health discussions becoming less taboo, and there's more of a willingness among younger generations to report symptoms of mental illness than there ever has been before. Some people say more kids are anxious these days than ever before, and other people say kids are just more willing to talk about their mental health. I don't think it's that black and white. 
I think there's a combination of both as well as many other factors playing into how kids experience anxiety and other mental conditions. As of last year, one in five kids between the age of 6 and 17 experience mental health disorders in a given year, and only half of those kids get treatment. That is a 20% increase from the millennial generation when we were their age. When I was a kid, I was most definitely anxious, but I had no idea until a few months ago that that was what was wrong with me. You can only imagine if I had the knowledge that I do today, I would have probably been a much more normal human being and not constantly in my head. But nowadays, a lot of that kiddo anxiety stems from social media and the lack of confidence that we now have in our environment, especially after the previous political choices and living through the COVID pandemic. Everyone's anxiety zooted up quite a bit. Because of social media and also just the nature of our world right now, kids are constantly measured against each other. There's so much competition in the classroom, on the sports field, and on the screen. Marco Grados, an associate professor of psychiatry and the clinical director of child and adolescent psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Hospital, says that he has seen 8th graders admitted into inpatient facilities saying that they have to choose a career. When I was in 8th grade, I was more focused on getting the kid who had drawn a mustache on his face with Sharpie to ask me to the school dance than I was planning out my career path. In kiddos, anxiety can be an early stage of other conditions as well. The aforementioned anemia or thyroid disorders can present with anxiety, and also bipolar and schizophrenia can initially present as anxiety as well. Even though we have no idea how to get out of this anxiety-ridden world, we need to start treating our kids and making sure that they feel comfortable enough to bring their symptoms to our attention. And that's on all y'all out there because I refuse to work with pediatrics. Sorry. On the flip side of that coin, recent data has shown an increase in anxiety in the elderly as well, and leading to increased morbidity and mortality, especially related to a higher cardiovascular burden and an increase in cognitive decline. Anxiety symptoms are often harder to recognize in the elderly due to the older generation still being less comfortable talking about mental health and also, they're less frequently able to identify that they are having feelings of anxiety because they haven't had the experience of growing up discussing their mental health and how they're feeling. Older people are also more likely to minimize their symptoms or to attribute their mental health symptoms to a physical illness or physical decline in general. Another thing, anxieties can change. They can change depending on your age, what you're going through at the time, your social situation, your financial situation, or how the world's behaving. They can totally flip on a dime, and one year you can be incredibly anxious about one thing, and the next year be on to an entirely different ballpark. For example, ever since I was in elementary school, I always worried about what other people thought of me, that they'd see me do something silly, and they would never forget it, and they would judge me forever. A little more than nine months ago, I went through a pretty intense time while I was studying my butt off for boards. I lost one of my best friends and the majority of my friend group, and to this day, I couldn't tell you what happened or why this happened. It just happened. And all of a sudden, while I was going through this shitstorm, all of my anxieties flipped. I was 28 years old, and for the first time, I was no longer concerned about what other people thought of me. I was concerned about what I thought of me. I went into a deep spiral of asking myself what was wrong with me, what had I done to make somebody hate me, how could I change myself to be what other people wanted me to be, etc., etc. I suddenly had vastly different anxieties and personal problems in general. And just as the research showed, I completely retreated. I stopped going to school. I stopped talking to people who were outside of my very immediate circle because I had absolutely no faith in who I was as a person. I'm telling you all this story, not to point fingers, but to illustrate how easily the way your brain thinks can change. And if it was that easy for my brain to tell me that I had no place in this world anymore, 
It also would have been that easy to switch up my brain chemistry and to stand up for myself. You are your own worst critic, and you also have the power to change the way you think, even if it seems impossible at the time. The chronicity of anxiety and letting it take over your life, like I did, does lead to further problems down the line. Besides the terrible feeling of anxiousness, anxiety can have serious repercussions on your health when chronic. When I was talking about the phases of anxiety, I mentioned that in the resistance phase, you can have elevated blood pressure and blood glucose, which demonstrates the connections between anxiety and the increased likeliness of developing cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. Stress and anxiety can cause your heart to beat too quickly, which over time can increase your risk of heart attack. That increased blood pressure is caused by spikes in cortisol. Frequent spikes in blood pressure, or even chronically elevated blood pressure, weaken the heart muscle and could eventually lead to coronary disease. People who have anxiety also often respond to their stressors in detrimental manners. As mentioned in the beginning, men are more likely to turn to substance abuse or overeating, while women are more likely to retreat from society and become lonely. All of these things have poor health outcomes, especially on the heart, and they increase the risk of heart disease over time. Also, to add in a chicken versus egg conversation, many patients who already have heart disease have anxieties about their heart, especially if they've already had a heart attack. This is an unfortunate double-edged sword because the fear itself of having a heart attack, stroke, or heart failure will have negative effects on the heart and the person, but that fear can also encourage these patients to change up their habits and seek positive health behaviors instead. The same goes for type 2 diabetes patients who are actually more likely to exhibit clinical and subclinical symptoms of anxiety than people without diabetes. This just encourages us to look at the human body as a whole and to treat it as so instead of just looking at individual diseases and symptoms. It's 2022, and we've all heard of this little bug called COVID that has completely changed the way that we live our lives. And I'm sure that many of you have heard, and if you haven't, you may have felt it, that living through the pandemic has led to a huge spike in anxiety, depression, and other mental conditions in general. The need for mental health care right now is so intense that I've had to tell patients there's about an 18-month waiting list for getting in with a covered provider right now. 18 months. Waiting that long when you can't get out of your brain is way, 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 way too long. There have been countless studies on how the pandemic has affected all of us in regards to anxiety. Remember when COVID first started and you couldn't find toilet paper to save your life? Because for some reason, toilet paper was the first thing people thought they should stock up on? Not cold medicine or Lysol wipes, those came later, but toilet paper. COVID anxieties came from all aspects of the pandemic, from being terrified you were going to get it and wiping down all of your food with bleach, to watching the news consistently. Everything turned up the anxiety dial quite a bit, and due to our political climate, a lot of that anxiety has stuck around, unfortunately. Once people started getting into routines, creating family bubbles, and eventually when things started normalizing, these were all protective measures against the burden of anxiety, and things started to get a little bit better. But working in the medical field, excessively watching the news, suppressing your beliefs, having pre-existing diseases, and even just being of the female sex were all accompanied with more severe anxiety during and after the pandemic. So whether it's COVID-related, something else going on in your life, or just who you are as a person, if you experience anxiety, what can you do about it? Think about what's causing your anxiety and bring it up with your doctor. They'll probably want to run some labs to rule out pathological anxieties, like the aforementioned anemia or thyroid disorder or cortisol dysregulation, diabetes, or even dehydration and electrolyte imbalances. Remember that. 
that you can have anxiety and it can be caused by something going on in your body. It's not necessarily only something going on in your brain. There's so much research out there for different treatments of anxiety. The world is ripe with options. And once you know the actual cause, it's so much easier to treat and fix. One last topic to cover as it relates back to episode two on orgasms and sexual function. A study done in 2018 looked at the connections between sexual dysfunction, which is a terrible word, I hate using it, but it was used in the study, so out of respect for the actual study, I'm using it. So the connections between sexual dysfunction and mental health, specifically anxiety. They found that impairment of mental health is actually the most important risk factor for female sexual dysfunction. Antidepressants and antipsychotic medications can lead to decreased libido, and the neurobiology of anxiety can rewire the brain so that when one senses physical sexual arousal, it can lead to fear instead of pleasure. And the most common type of pain with sex is 10 times more common in women with previous diagnoses of anxiety disorders. Even with postmenopausal women, sexual health is more linked to mental health than the physical functioning of the body, which it is most typically connected to. So similarly to the cardiovascular conundrum, which comes first, the anxiety or the sexual dysfunction? Researchers have found that sexual dysfunction, anxiety disorders, and depression all result from an underlying vulnerability to both psychiatric disease and sexual dysfunction. This means that if you have one of these risk factors or disorders, it will increase the odds of the other two showing up in your life at some point. So that's all that I have for you guys for anxiety. I had a few more studies that I thought were really interesting, but I don't want to go overboard on the clinicalness with everyone, as my mom told me that the last episode was too clinical. At the end of every episode, um, per request, I'm going to start doing a quick wrap-up slash review of the top takeaways from the episode. I'm working on coming up with some cutesy stupid name for this segment, so bear with me while I struggle. But as for right now, here are the top five takeaways from this episode. Number one, women are twice as likely as men to experience anxiety based on sexism, hormonal fluctuations, and different brain chemistry. Number two, there are three phases of anxiety, alarm, resistance, and exhaustion, and discovering which phase you're in is imperative in treating it. Number three, anxiety presents differently and for different reasons in all generations. Just because someone else is exhibiting different symptoms from you doesn't mean that they aren't also actually experiencing anxiety as well. Number four, chronic anxiety can lead to long-term health effects and set you up for unhealthy aging. And five, anxiety is really, really common. You're not alone, and there are people out there who can help you. Reach out to anyone and everyone you feel comfortable talking to. Hell, if you don't have anybody in your life that you can talk to, reach out to me. I'm always happy to be a listening ear or a helping hand. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Spassy Speculum. Your continued support means so much to me. Please remember to review or rate the podcast wherever you're listening to it if you like it. You can reach out to me via Instagram or TikTok at Sassy Speculum, or you can email me at sassyspeculum at gmail.com, or you can also send me an anonymous message on my website at www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum. If you have more topic ideas, send them my way. I only want to create episodes about what you guys want to hear, so reach out and let me know what you're thinking about. You can also always reach out to me with questions, concerns, feedback, or anything else you want. Also, in, I guess, typical Adrian fashion, I once again forgot to post the resources for episode three with episode three, so they will be posted with this episode in the show notes. 
Maybe I should make this a plan and just pretend like I don't actually forget to add them in every other show. I apologize for being a total space cadet sometimes. It's just the way that this weirdo brain works sometimes, I guess. Thank you guys all for listening. I really, really appreciate it. I will talk at you again in two weeks. Bye. And I got bad anxiety People call me rude cause I ain't letting them try me Saying I'm a hoe cause I'm in love with my body Issues but nobody I can talk to about it They keep saying I should get help But I don't even know what I need They keep saying speak your truth And at the same time say they don't believe Man, excuse me while I get into my feelings for a second Usually I keep it damn, but today I gotta tell it Not that anybody gives a fuck anyway But everybody talking shit probably sucks anyway Yeah, I don't even know how I feel I don't even know how I deal Today I really hate everybody And that's just me being real, yeah